Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a foreign But that Why hookup was not first good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Every Girl Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we are going to jump right into the Ask the Every Girl. Josie, are you ready? I'm ready. This is like the <laughs> highlight of my week is finding out the new Ask the Every Girl. Yeah, it is the highlight of my week as well. Um, <laughs> and this one, this question is juicy. So the question is, I'm 32 years old and have never had sex. I lived at home during college, so I feel like I missed out on that time when a lot of my friends were having sex. I'm casually dating and want to find a partner and get married, but I feel like telling any potential partner that I haven't had sex is embarrassing. If I do start seeing someone, is it okay not to tell them that I'm inexperienced? Yeah, this is juicy. I love that you picked a sex question for a very sexy episode. This episode is, the whole this thing. is not the one that you put on in the carpool. No. This is the headphones episode that you maybe like send to your partner. Okay. Right. And be like, oops, yeah. didn't mean to send you that link. But then they're intrigued and they want to listen. Okay. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Great question. First of all, can we drop this idea? That you need to have like wild sexual exploration in college. This is a narrative that I don't think is helping anybody. I'm all for if you want to use college as your sexual exploration, go for it. But I don't think we need that. I did not have a wild sexual exploration in college. I was scared of men. I was terrified <laughs> of men. I was like, don't come anywhere near me. I went on dates and then they try to kiss and I'd be like, no, thank you. Bye. <laughs> I did not have sexual exploration in college. Should I have? Maybe. But I just think that this narrative of I missed out on something in, in college is not yeah. beneficial. I completely agree. And as somebody who did have wild sexual exploration in college, off, Emma. I also think it's unnecessary to have this idea that there's a right time in your life to explore your sexuality. There is no right or wrong time. All of us at some point in our lives will have this feeling of like, oh, I missed out no matter what it is, regardless of whether it's about sex or not. But especially when it comes to sex, it's so important to remind ourselves and our friends and the people around us that you are right on time for your own life. There's no winning. Like everybody yeah. always feels like I miss out on one thing. I actually have a lot of friends who did use their young early 20s to like go full on sexual exploration like Dora the Explorer style. That's so weird. We're that. I don't know how that came out of me. Coming back from that, 
Um, <laughs> so I know a lot of friends who really explored and then they feel like they're, quote, inexperienced because they were not in a committed relationship until later on. So they're right. feeling like they're inexperienced in, in some ways. So you're so right that everybody always feels like I'm not normal. Yeah. Something's wrong with me. And the truth is, if we all feel that way, yeah, that's got to tell us something. Yeah, okay? exactly. Especially as women, this idea that you are either too sexually experienced or not sexually experienced enough, or you've been in too many committed relationships or you haven't been in any. So that's bad. Like all of that shame surrounding sex and dating just benefits and comes from the patriarchy, unlearning all of that takes so much work. So for this person, I want to acknowledge that, like how much work it takes. It, it is a lot of ingrained patriarchy, a lot of ingrained shame mm -hmm. that we are all having to unwork. And I, I don't know if it's because I've been in sex therapy or because like I've talked to, you know, so many experts on the podcast that my reaction to this question is obviously this person I'm assuming is probably defining it in like the heteronormative penetrative sex, but sex can literally be anything. It could literally be like you alone, obviously masturbating, but not even that. Like it can just be you like grazing your arm. And I don't mean that you're orgasming because you touched your forearm. I mean, that's pleasure to feel sensation on your skin. That's pleasure. That's a part of sex. It could be hand holding. It could be kissing. It could, like there are so many things that define sex. So it's always hard for me when someone says I've never had sex because I want to be like most of us at some point have experienced sexuality and the broader definition of sex is anything that feels pleasurable to you. And I know that's I mean that's very like woo woo and more righteous than what can tangibly be applied to dating. So I get that. But that's my first layer. Maybe it would be helpful for you because it's been helpful for me to redefine our definition of what sex is and that it doesn't have to be penetration. So you can look at it and think maybe it's not that I'm inexperienced. It's that I have a different experience than maybe a new partner does, which most of us do. It's something I've also really learn to reframe through the experts that we've had on the podcast who talk about sex, that penetrative sex is not the only definition. And thinking about sexual pleasure outside of that or foreplay outside of what we traditionally think of as foreplay, all of that is very important. Yeah, even if it's really hard, because it's just like what culture has taught us. It is a lot of work mm -hmm. to reframe what culture has instilled in us. The other interesting piece of this is that idea of being inexperienced and feeling like you're inexperienced because you have not had penetrative sex. It almost is like, it's just interesting because it's your body. What's the experience? You know, like the experience is what you have for yourself. And this idea that sex is a certain formula you need to master. So if you have not mastered the formula, you're inexperienced. Like it's just not true. Sex is just yeah. about your body and your pleasure. And then the person that you're with's body and pleasure. So I would argue that in the beginning of any relationship, everyone is technically inexperienced because you're having to learn your partner's sexuality. Yeah. But you are experienced in your own sexuality. And if you don't feel like you are, 
because I didn't for a long time, that's something that you can do on your own. And again, I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about masturbation, which totally great. Go do that. But I mean, also just like asking yourself, what makes me feel empowered? What makes me feel sexy? Literally just asking yourself and seeing what comes up. That to me is more, quote, experience than having any certain amount of partners, doing any certain amount of positions, doing right. any types of different sex. You know, like that's the experience is knowing what you like, knowing your body. I completely agree, especially with what you said about every time you're with a new partner, you are inexperienced. I think that yeah. that is something that we just totally don't acknowledge that being intimate with someone for the first time, regardless of how much past sexual experience you have, is usually pretty awkward. Yes. And feeling like I'm here to learn in a very weird way of like, yeah. I, I'm not going to expect it to be the exact same as previous partners. I'm here to learn what it is about this partner that I like and also teach. That's where the communication comes in of, I like this. I don't like this. That makes me feel good. That doesn't. Even for long-term partners, it should be a learning experience. And I think that's what makes sex exciting because what felt good for me at 21 is very different than what feels good to me as a 28-year-old. You're constantly changing and then you're constantly learning. So these are all mindset things that, I mean, you know me, I always start with mindset. I feel like mindset is the foundation for everything. But I also want to give this listener some tangible advice on what to do in their dating life? Like, what are they telling people that they're dating? This may be a hot take, but in my opinion, I don't think that anyone has a responsibility to disclose their sexual past. Unless, of course, be safe, get tested, communicate if you have other partners. But in terms of your sexual past, I really do not think it's anyone's business and you have a right to hold that privacy. I totally agree. We get to choose what we want to disclose and what we don't. And to me, it's the same thing. I understand how culturally it's very different. But if we can look at it in the frame of you wouldn't necessarily feel the need to be like, oh, I've never tried this toy before or I've never tried this position before. Maybe you will to be like, oh, I've never I don't know about this. I've never tried it. Like, show me how you like to do this. But you don't necessarily feel like it's your duty or it's your responsibility to say, I've never tried this position. You can say it or you cannot. It's not necessary to disclose. But I also, I definitely want to lie about it. I think it it comes down to like what feels right for this person. Like it might feel like a really intense thing that there's been a lot of weight and a lot of pressure. So you might need someone to be able to support you and be able to talk through emotions coming up. Therefore, I would say it it is necessary for you to disclose and to share. I think it's powerful to be like, I have shame around this and let's talk about it. And of course, maybe you're not going to do that on the first date. But if it's a, a significant thing for you, I think it's worth having someone that can support you through that. But on the other hand, if you're like, I don't really give a fuck, I don't care that much, it's going to be fine, then I don't think you have a responsibility to disclose that for sure. So whatever feels good to you. I actually think that this person has a kind of a superpower here because the way people treat sex in a relationship is obviously ginormous. But I think when you can be vulnerable about your sex life, how other people respond 
is really telling. So you can really weed out a lot of bad eggs very early on. That is so true. I actually have a similar experience. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to share it on air. I'm going to do it. When I first started dating Joey, I felt like I couldn't have penetrative sex. I was having pelvic pain. Like I was just in a place where I was like, I honestly don't know. We had been talking while I was in Paris. So we were talking a lot before any physical intimacy was ever on the table. He was a few years older. So when I'm 21, he's this 24-year-old guy. But he was just like this cool DJ guy that people knew about, whatever. So I was thinking, this 24-year-old, this cool DJ guy is going to want nothing to do with me. So I was so nervous to tell him I have pain. This is where I'm at. I was so nervous to tell him that. And this was like a huge anxiety for me. So when I finally did tell him, he literally kind of like laughed, not like laughed at me. But he like was like, I can't believe you even think I would care about that. And that to me meant so much. Yeah. So I don't want anyone to feel the shame that I definitely felt myself, but I understand it. And I've been there. And I think knowing how other people respond to that is so telling. And if this person was looking just for partners to have sex with, and that would be one thing. But since they're looking for a relationship, they're looking for marriage. I think this is a superpower because you get to weed out a lot of assholes, a lot of bad eggs. Yeah. And I think it might mean more to you than you even think. And it might make your potential relationship even better and deeper when you can be open about your experience and just the emotion that you feel attached to this. Yeah, 100%. I'll share an opposite anecdote because I recently had sort of a situation where someone was asking me a lot about my sexual history very early on. And I felt like it was expected that I needed to disclose that information. And then when the situationship did not progress into a relationship, which it didn't need to, I didn't want it to. But when it didn't, it was sort of like, dang, I wish I hadn't felt like it was my responsibility. And I could have just said, can we just focus on the moment right now? You hold a lot of power in your own sexual history and you can weed out a lot of bad eggs. That's really interesting. Do you feel like it was more vulnerable than you wish you had been? 100%. Yeah, I totally get that. So the point is no shame. No shame. No shame is possible. But yes. it does work. So yeah. kudos to this person for starting that journey. I couldn't agree more. I feel like everyone should be in sex therapy. Probably. <laughs> Speaking of sex therapy, this episode was kind of sex therapy. Jaya is amazing. She's an award-winning sexologist and was a featured expert on Gwyneth Paltrow's Netflix show, Sex, Love, and Goop. She's also the author of numerous books geared towards having more pleasure and rewarding sex, including her newest release, Your Blueprint for Pleasure. Jaya is widely recognized as a leader in the field of sexology, and it was truly such an honor to talk to her. We chat about why sexual incompatibility is a myth, where attraction comes from, and the five different erotic blueprints, which is basically like love languages for your sexuality and pleasure. I'm curious what you think, Emma, but for me, this was the most fascinating understanding of human sexuality that I have ever heard. Oh, yeah. Like, truly. It's a really interesting system that she has created. And it makes so much sense. This episode should be required listening for everybody because it will help you feel seen, the question, like we were talking about, everybody feels like they're inexperienced, they're abnormal, something's wrong with them. Everybody feels that way about sex, and she really defines why. 
So Mm -hmm. this will make you feel seen. It will help you tap into ultimate fulfilling sexuality. Like, you know, when people are like, oh, I had really great sex, but no one really knows what great sex means. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, sure, I've had good sex. But like, we don't really know if we've had good sex. Understanding your blueprint and if you're in a relationship, your partner's blueprint, game changer. So enjoy the episode. Please welcome Jaya to the Every Girl podcast. The first question I have for you, Jaya, is I've heard that you say that sexual compatibility is a myth. Why is that? I believe that a lot of times it's mistaken for this thing that is a doom in our relationship. Like you're just sexually incompatible. But instead, it's more like if your partner just spoke a different language than you did. If you love them, you just learn how to speak French or you learn how to speak English. It's less about compatibility and more about the willingness to actually learn what your lover speaks, how they're wired and the beauty of who they really are. And we just don't have enough sex education. And so we label it this incompatibility when it's actually not. It's just a lack of education. And, it, and anybody can build the skill if they're willing to do that. Wow. So is there no such thing like what people will say, like we don't have sexual chemistry that just about not having the language and education to communicate? I think it can come down. Sometimes there isn't chemistry, which is a little different. There's actually a cranial nerve in your nose called cranial nerve zero. I'm going to geek out just a little bit. What it does is it picks up the pheromones of your partner. So there is a biology, right? But that's more about your attraction than we're on different pages. And so with this cranial nerve zero, what it's picking up in your partner is their immune system. And it goes straight to the sex centers of the brain. And it's seeing if the two of you, based upon your immune systems, would create good offspring with a strong immune system. They did this test. It's called the T-shirt test, where they had women smelling a t-shirt to smell the pheromones of a man. And if they were on birth control, it messed up their ability to actually smell the right match. So here we have chemistry and we can be at the effect of chemistry, right? Of like, oh, I went off birth control and all of a sudden I'm not attracted to my partner. You're now smelling pheromones differently based upon immune system. And so sometimes our intellect can override chemistry. But what I'm interested in when it comes to this is, is the next level, which is alchemy. So we have sexual chemistry, which is at the fault of our biology, and that can change throughout your lifetime, right? You go through menopause, you have a baby, there's all kinds of things that can, you start eating a different diet, your hormones crash, so many things that can happen with chemistry. But you can override that with alchemy, which is when you and your partner are in this place, this is very, you know, ties into tantric principles and many other ancient texts. When you and your partner were committed to alchemy, It's about what are we co-creating with sexuality? What are we manifesting? How are we feeding our relationship? How are we feeding each other, even though we may not have, per se, sexual chemistry? And then that's where the blueprints tie in. That's where it's like, okay, well, let's learn the skill to shift biochemistry. Let's learn the skill sets to feed our partner and honor our partner in who they really are and how they're erotically wired. Wow. We get so stressed about chemistry. So this idea of alchemy, overriding chemistry is so cool. Can you define what alchemy is? What does that mean? So we alchemize something. We turn lead into gold. That's like a scientific way. But when we think about relationship, alchemy is how are we taking whatever is in our relationship because we're committed to something 
and we're turning that into gold. We're transmuting it. We're moving it into something new together. Again, this like, oh, we're at the effect of chemistry. But sometimes you can have super hot sexual chemistry, but then the relationship doesn't work. And so when you're committed to the relationship and you're committed to love, then you're creating this alchemy or you just become conscious in your sexual practice around, well, what is it that we're co-creating? What is it that we're alchemizing? We're creating something new out of what we have here together now. One of the questions we get asked a lot by our audience is that they meet this amazing person. They're wonderful. They're a great partner, but they don't feel like they have this sexual chemistry. So if compatibility is a myth, can anybody get a more fulfilling sex life if they work at the alchemy or are there exceptions? For the most part, people can because it's a learned skill. And there are so many things that affect our turn on. And so there's actually a part of your brain called the dual control response model. And this dual control part of your brain is constantly scanning for what is sexually relevant. It's scanning all the time, 24-7, all day long. And it's either saying that turns me on and go for it, or it's saying, don't, stop. It's inhibiting sexual response or it's exciting sexual response. So you're either getting excited or inhibited all day long. Evelina Gasky talks about this in her book, Come As You Are, and she calls it the accelerator brakes model. It's either putting the gas on or it's putting the brakes on. So we have this in multitudes of ways in relationship. Our partner's breath smells bad. Inhibitor, breaks. If you're a sensual type, you know, some other people doesn't care that their breath smells bad. So that is really unique to each person if they're feeling excited and attracted versus if they're feeling inhibited. Most people, when there's sexual, I don't like the word dysfunction, but when there's challenges, there's too much breaks. And then when we get people who have sexual compulsion, there's a lack of breaks and too much accelerator. We can explain a lot in relationships just looking at the dual control model and being able to go, okay, is this something that excites me or something that's inhibiting me? And then how does that play out in my relationship? And can I ask for more exciters? Yes, you can. But if you got your brakes on, your car is still not going anywhere. Really, the trick is how do we lower the brakes so that we have harmony and flow in our relationships with each other? And I believe that can be cultivated with anybody. If you really are committed to, I love this person, I want to be in a long-term relationship with this person, then what's the work that I need to do to turn off the inhibitors and turn on more accelerators? That's such a cool way to think of it, because so often when we think of sexual challenges, dysfunction, incompatibility, all that stuff, it typically is we feel like we don't have enough libido. We don't have enough sex drive. Like there's something missing from us. So yeah. to think instead, it's not that we don't have enough. It's that we have too many things stopping it from actually being able to come through and feel it. Like that to me feels really empowering. Right. There's something wrong with you versus, right. hey, just like take off the brakes a little. <laughs> so many of us are like, am I normal? Are my genitals normal? Am I broken? And I really love to say you're not broken. You're whole and complete already the way that you are. We just oftentimes have to chip off the cultural programming and the inherited belief systems and just so much around sexuality that isn't serving us. As a sexologist, I can imagine you've heard the question, am I normal? Many, many times in your career. <laughs> oh, many times. So many Which, times. Which, 
How crazy is that? That that's what people want to know is they want to know, is this normal? Not like this is what makes me feel good. So I'm owning that and feel good in that. Or like, this is a part of me. So I feel good about it's how do I compare to others? How do other people perceive me? And isn't that said that that's what we want to know when it comes to our sexuality? A hundred percent. I think we're also the quality of the questions that we're asking. And so if we're always asking these comparative, am I normal? Am I okay? Then that's the quality of sex that you're having. You're in that like headspace and you're worried about things. And that's an inhibitor. If you're thinking about your body and worried about how your body is and am I okay? And am I normal? And do I smell all right? You're not you know, experiencing the pleasure, the turn on that's there because there's too much, again, inhibitor with all the worry and the thoughts that are rolling around in your mind. Before we get into all the tips on how to get out of those inhibitors, I really want to dive into the erotic blueprints. So first of all, for our audience who's totally new to the idea, what is an erotic blueprint? An erotic blueprint is the way that you are erotically wired. And we all have a blueprint type. There's the core erotic blueprint is actually much bigger. The type However, is where most people want to focus because they want to know more about who they are. And so there's five types and they give us a language to be able to say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm turned on by. And here's what I struggle with when it comes to my sexuality. So it is like a map to who you are at this moment in time. So walk me through all five of them if you can. I want to hear about each of them. The first one is the energetic. And the energetic is someone who's turned on by tease, anticipation, Lots of space, longing, yearning for something to arise in them or for something outside of them that they can't have. The shadow side, however, the inhibitor, the breaks, is that the energetic is so hypersensitive that too much, too quick, too fast, and they can turn off very quickly. And they also can dissociate out of their body. They have a hard time setting boundaries. And so they're often overriding their need for all this yearning and longing and space because they feel like they're weird or wrong. Mm-hmm. So we don't think about, oh, great sex happens not touching. It's like that that line I just watched The Holiday, so this is top of mind, where he's like, what do you think about foreplay? And she's like, it's overrated. And that's supposed to be like a cool girl thing. You know what I mean? Like that was like the cool girl ideals to be like, you don't need foreplay. You get right into it. But there's so much of sexuality that happens in everything that's not the actual act of penetration, right? Right, it's right. all that yearning, that everything else leading up to it. So that totally makes sense. Absolutely. The next one's sensual. And the sensual is someone who's turned on by all of their senses being ignited. So this is taste, smell, touch. They bring the beauty to eroticism. They can have non-genital orgasms. So anywhere in their body can become orgasmic. The shadow side is getting caught up with our head. So they're often thinking, my partner's breath smells bad or do I taste okay? All the things that they forgot to do that day on their to-do list. All of that is that intruding upon the experience. They can get caught up too much in things not being perfect all the time. The third one is the sexual. And that's someone who's turned on by what we think of as sex in our culture. So that's penetration, orgasm, intercourse. They're usually the easiest to approach arousability. So it's like zero to 60. You know, all the sex techniques and tips and tools are often written for sexuals. And so those are the things that are going to work for them. And then on the shadow side, however, they're missing out on all the other blueprints. Like you were just saying in that movie that like, okay, we're just going to get to it. Well, there's so many other things. And I think that we fall into the standard narrative of what great sex is, is sort of like, 
okay, now we kiss, we make out a little bit, we touch here and there in the erogenous areas, then we go down on somebody and then we have intercourse. And that's what good sex looks like. Everybody has an orgasm and there's wetness and erections and that's what it looks like. And that's actually a very, very limited view. And so the sexuals have this very limited definition of what successful sex looks like. And it excludes a lot of other things. And it excludes the journey. What I find interesting about sexuals is that they have sex to decrease stress. So talking again about inhibitors and exciters, 80% of people, when they feel a lot of stress, it's an inhibition. But for 20% of people, it's an exciter. And so for sexuals, oftentimes they feel stress, they have sex, and then they feel good again. Whereas a sensual, on the other hand, needs to have total relaxation before it can fit into sex with somebody. It's like, no way. I can't even think about sex right now. I got to do the laundry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the to-do list. I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, that's very much what they either know like a lot of men to be like. Or that is just very much like what our culture is like. Is it a more common one? Or is it just because that is the only vision of sexuality we get is the sexual blueprint that more people copy that because they don't know the other blueprints are out there? Like, is it more of the biology or is it the culture that makes that so common? I believe it's more of the culture. We've had over 3 million people take our quiz. So we've collected data over all these years. And I think it's really interesting looking at gender. And what our stereotypes are. So often the advice out there is like, do these things and that you keep your man forever kind of. Right. But what we found is most cisgendered heterosexual men, meaning they were born with a penis and they identify as male. They are not sexual primarily. They're more another blueprint that I haven't talked about yet. And so they have more of a wide range of sexuality. And that was really fascinating. We also see with women, people who identify as women, that it is mostly energetic and sensual. And so we're missing out a lot of times on the energetic. And so people are like, oh, I feel like I was so broken my whole life. Like, I hear this all the time. No, you're not broken. It's just nobody knows how to play with an energetic. Nobody taught you that that was a thing in your eroticism. So we're busting a lot of those mythologies and just looking at the statistics that it isn't one size fits all and our sexuality is much more fluid. And I think what happens is that we're culturally taught these boxes. We get stuck in the box identity wise and then think something's wrong with us if we don't fit within that stereotype or that box that the culture has created for us. Like tunnel vision, like Mm -hmm. this is the one way to be. So this is the one way I'll express it. But then you spend your life feeling like something's wrong with me because I'm not fitting into the box as easily as I think it looks like other people are fitting into the box. For an energetic man who's like, wait a minute, but I'm not turned on by intercourse and I'm not turned on by nakedness and I don't want to just get right to it. Then they feel like something's wrong with me. And they go through most of their lives feeling that way because that's the way I'm supposed to be. No, you're just energetic. And that can be very profound for someone to find that out and then go, wait a minute. Wow, I have superpowers. So what is the blueprint that you notice a lot of the males fall into? So it's shapeshifter. And a shapeshifter is all of the types. I haven't talked about kinky yet. So I'll talk about that one so we can understand oh, the yeah. shapeshifter a little better. Okay, so love it. kinky is the fourth one. And that is someone who's turned on by the taboo. 
So it's anything that's taboo for you. It's when it feels naughty. It feels like it's on that edge. And that could be psychological taboo. So meaning I'm giving power over to somebody and I'm letting them boss me around in the bedroom. Or it might look like playing different kind of power dynamic games of submission and dominance. Then there's also the sensation-based side of it, which is more about impact or rope bondage, being tied up. These kinds of things that can make us feel a certain sensation. And some people are a combination of those things. On the shadow side, the inhibitors are shame. Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? Why do I like these edgy things? So that shame then can inhibit and then create more of what I call a rut that then becomes a grave because you're creating the new same neural pathway of this isn't okay, but it turns me on so much. It's the taboo that keeps turning you on. So the more you make it taboo, the more it becomes your only route to pleasure. But a superpower similar to an energetic is they can have orgasms without being touched. There are ways to go really into conscious kink and really play really powerfully and creatively. I think we could play for the rest of our lives in this realm and not have discovered all the fun taboos that we've made in this culture. So then the shapeshifter is this combination of all four of them. They speak all the languages. Their superpower is the ability to shapeshift between all of these. So they're great lovers because if you're essential, they can be essential. The shapeshifter also is someone who, in their shadow, shapeshifts to please other people, but then has never pleased themselves. So they're always shapeshifting and not really getting fed. And they've often been told they're too much. So the too muchness becomes an inhibitor. Oh, I'm too much. So I'm going to shrink down my sexuality instead of being the big fullness that I truly am. Is it more of like sexual empathy where you're really good at reading what turns people on and going into those different spaces or more of you can be turned on by a lot of different things and a lot of different circumstances? It sounds like it's a little bit of both. It is a little bit of both. It's that I love variety. I have lots of pathways to my sexuality and to my orgasms and arousal. And I can also feel into another person and be able to meet them there. My belief is that we're actually all shapeshifters. But what happens is that we get culturally programmed, as we were talking about, like this little piece of me, I'm going to cut off now and I'm not going to allow my full wholeness in my sexuality, my full spectrumness, because that one's not okay. And this part of me is weird. So I'm going to cut that one off. And then we start to do that or we start to cover it up and we're not living in our full expression. I think most of us just touch the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what is sexually possible and erotically possible. That's what I was going to ask is where do these come from? Like, are we born just all having different sexuality or is it something that's purely programmed because of our experience? So what are some examples of where we could have this programmed idea about sexuality that determines our blueprint besides what the media, what movies, what we see in like major culture? Are there other ways that we receive these messages that determine the blueprint? Because I would imagine otherwise everyone in the same culture would have the exact same blueprint. Yeah. So there's a multitude of things. I think we get sex education from the moment we are born, maybe even before, like we're getting messages about sex. I often ask audiences all over the world, okay, who got a good sex education in the audience? And maybe 1% of people will raise their hand. And then I'll say, who had no sex education? And the majority of the room will, will raise their hand that they had no sex education. 
And I argue with that. I, I say, you actually have been getting a sex education from the moment you were born and you've been determining what's okay and what's not okay since that. You've been determining, is this shameful? Is this bad? Should I feel guilty for this? Based upon all of the early messaging. So that could be media, that could be parents, grandparents, porn. You know, did you watch porn? What did that teach you about sexuality? Did you look at magazines? Did you read romance novels? That was mine. I was a teenage girl. I was super into romance novels. Science fiction <laughs> romance novels. Um, that's such so- a niche. Science fiction romance <laughs> novels. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and like, what did that teach me? How did that shape me? What about your early sexual experiences? How did that go? One of my favorite books is a book called Dilemmas of Desire. And it's written about a study done with 100 high school girls and their first time having sex. And it was so fascinating to me because only two out of the 100 girls actually felt like they were empowered and they had chose to have oh, uh, the rest wow. of them um, felt like it had to happen, felt like they were pressured, you know, or worse. Where did that message come from? It's not OK to take sexuality in my own hands. And that comes from the shame. It's not OK. We don't talk about it. So it has to be something that just happens to me because if I'm empowered, then I'm a slut. So we're always getting messages advertising, media, everything around us is telling us what's okay and what's not okay. Do you have any tips on where to start for a listener who's thinking, oh, I'm realizing how many negative views about my sexuality I have. Where can they start to get over and erase those things so that they can embrace their authentic sexuality? Hmm. The first thing is to make as much of it as you can conscious. To get awake to the impact things have had in your life In my book, I actually have a bunch of exercises called dyads. So I'll share a little of that because I think it's just a way to start to empty the mind content. So a dyad is something that you can do with another person where you would sit across from them and ask the same question or prompt over and over again. So one might be, tell me something that shaped your sexuality. And you just ask each other back and forth, tell me something that shaped your sexuality. And you don't have a conversation about it. You just say thank you when you understand them. And you keep going deeper and deeper and new content starts coming up from the unconscious. The first step is awareness of what impacted you. Tell me what impacted your sexuality could be a way to say it. Tell me something that was a really big event in your sexuality could be another way. If you don't have a partner to do this with, you can just do it in a notebook. Write the prompt at the top and keep doing it over and over again. And I would do it at 20 to 40 minutes because once you start getting past like the first 10 minutes, you get content from your unconscious that starts to come up and then your mind gets empty of it. And then I take a look at that list and circle like the top three or four things and then maybe write down two or three action steps for each one of those of ways that could help you unravel those inherited beliefs or events. And that might be working with a therapist. That might be working with a sexuality coach. That might be taking class. So there's any number of ways of really working deeply with it. And I'm a somatic practitioner. So I also believe that the body holds on to this. And maybe there's something somatically that would help you release it from your body. There are all kinds of different modalities out there, like somatic experiencing, for example, or somatic sexology and, and people who can help in this area. You hear about pelvic floor issues so much more commonly now. Do you find any tie 
Speaking of more like somatic experience, is there a tie between the pelvic floor physical issues and a lot of the shame, like the study you cited of of women in high school and what they go through? Do you mm. see a tie? Yeah, I do. So let's say someone comes to see me and they have some kind of pelvic floor issue. Maybe it's pain or weak muscles. Oftentimes it's pain. This is so surprising how many people experience pain during sex and they think it's normal. And it's not. If you're having pain during sex, I don't want to say not normal. It's just we don't want to be experiencing having pain during sex. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to accept that as your normal. Right, right. When it comes to pain, I'm often looking at a multitude of things. So one, what's happening physically in the physical realm? Is there scar tissue? Is there a tear? Is there dryness? Is there an injury? So what's happening historically? Did something happen there? And then there's biochemistry. So is is something in your chemistry causing the dryness or causing tissue to thin? And then oftentimes we'll get past that first realm, or maybe there isn't anything and there's just a phantom pain that we can't link to anything. Then I look at the psyche-emotional realm. So what's happening with shame during sex? Was there an event in the past that feels like the trauma is still being held there? When I touch this area of your body or you touch or somebody touches this, is there an emotion that comes up, some kind of charge that comes up? And so then we look at processing the emotion around that pain. And Mm -hmm. that could be directly like, I'm mad that I have pain and I want to have great sex. Or that could be, wow, that spot's really holding grief. And I need to Mm -hmm. really cry. And then we sit and we cry. We be with the grief that didn't get to express itself. So now we've gone through the psyche-emotional layer, and then I start to go into the transpersonal, which is where we start to get very interesting things. Like in the transpersonal, I might get something like, oh my gosh, I'm having this image of being burned at the stake as a witch. Or, oh my goodness, I just felt like the collective of all women who've been harmed. Or, wow, I just am getting all these strange images and colors. This is when we start to get into the unseen aspect of the pain. We might call it woo-woo or kind of out there, but there's transpersonal psychology. Stan Groff was a pioneer in that, that really validates these experiences that we have that may not have to do with something emotional or something that happened in our history but that we're tapping into collectively a pain that is the pain of, of women, is a pain of childbirth, is a pain like is a more of a collective pain or something that we can't make sense of in the moment. It's almost dreamlike. I'm looking at this whole picture with somebody, not just one aspect, because it isn't usually just one aspect. I, I think that just is probably like so relieving for people to be exposed to the work that you do. And feel that sense of like relief for the first time. So once they identify the blueprint that they identify with is the goal that then they can change the way that they interact with their partner is the goal to find out what their partner is. And then that can help kind of like the love languages where it's meant to be for both to understand your love, but also your partner's love. How do you actually apply this to practice? So a couple of different ways. The first thing is to know yourself. So understand what your blueprint is, understand more about who you are, and then your partner. So you may want to have your partner take the quiz. And then after you both know who you are, there's four things to apply. The first thing is to feed your blueprint. 
So if you're feeling unfed, like you find out, oh my gosh, I'm a shapeshifter. And all this time I have like all this variety that I want. Now I understand how do I actually feed myself in my own eroticism? And I think this is important. I think we think that sex is something that happens with another person, but sex is something that happens with you. You have your own erotic life, your own erotic aliveness, and that can be something explored all on your own. And then there's exploring it with a partner. So how do you get fed? And then how do you learn how to feed your lover? It's like, put your own oxygen mask on. We've all heard that. And so get fed, get filled up first, and then bring that fullness to your lover. Then after you've fed and gotten filled up, then you want to speak your languages. So what does it mean to speak? It's not just the words that we say. It's our body language. It's what shines through our eyes. It's how we're communicating to our partner in their blueprint and how we're being communicated to. For example, I could say to a sexual, like, put it in. I want to have sex tonight. <laughs> Let's go. And a sexual is going to be like, great. Yeah. language. But if I said that to an energetic, that would be disrespectful. That would be not honoring them in who they are and in their language that actually turns them on. Again, it's not just the words. It's the vocal tone. It's the way that I'm being with someone. So even when I start to talk about energetic, I slow down. And that's not conscious. It's that I've just had so much practice speaking the blueprints versus when I'm talking sexual. You know, there's just a different animation and all of that is speaking. So then there's healing. And healing is the inhibitors, the shadow sides that I talked about. So how do we heal in the blueprint? And some of what I talked about already is like looking at these different realms and looking at the whole picture of our sexuality. So again, you could use a dyad. Tell me something that inhibits you sexually and make a list. And what are the top ones? And start to work on, well, how could I help heal that? Something that I want to say there, too, is there are some things you may not want to heal. For example, there's an emergency break in our car, right? Those are things like don't have sex in the middle of your business meeting. That's an inhibitor. <laughs> I don't think Helpful. I need to handle that yeah. one, you know, because like that's my emergency break. Of, yeah, I'm really turned on right now, but that's appropriate. Like we want right. those emergency breaks. Sure. But the little things that you're constantly tapping the brake. Or you have the emergency brake all the time on and you're trying to drive the car. That's a drag on the system all the time. So what are those things that you may want to look at healing the shadow of? Can you give some example examples of common inhibitors or things that people should look for? So getting caught in your head is a big one. I talked about that with the sensual blueprint, but a lot of people have that. Stress. Do you need to lower the amount of stress in your life and create more spaciousness? Kids. That's a big one that I hear. Like once I had our kids, you know, then I just didn't feel sexy anymore. And that could be body stuff or that could just be like, oh, we shouldn't have sex when the kids are in the house. So kids can be a a really big inhibitor. What are ways you could work around that? Can you get a babysitter? Can you start having date nights? Can you have the door is closed and locked? Dogs. You would not believe how many people are like the dogs in the bed licking my feet when I'm trying to have sex. So pets can be a big one. On a spiritual level, I feel you on that one. (laughs) I feel too full. Like I ate too much at dinner during date night. I don't feel good. You just don't feel good in your body. And so you don't feel like you want to have sex. And, And then also, I just don't feel connected to my partner. 
that's a big inhibitor. Like right now we're fighting. Whereas some people, that's a that's not an inhibitor. And some people are demisexual and they really need to have that connection with someone before they feel like they can have sex with them. And I want to change the definition of sex. I'm not talking about intercourse. And there's so many different scripts. And I was just with Ian Kerner at a, an event and he talks about sex scripts. And this one sex script, we make out, we touch, we go down, then we do intercourse, then we have an orgasm. And that's one of so many different sex scripts. Sex does not have to include intercourse or penetration. We have outer course. We have all these different blueprints. You can have sex in the energetic and never even touch or be in proximity with each other. So there's so much possible and we, we just haven't even touched it. Pun intended. We have not touched it. <laughs> <laughs> For people that are in partnerships, whether it's a long-term relationship and they're trying to get that quote, like the spark back or trying to spice up their sex life, or if it is just a new partner, when I stand, whatever it is, if you're in a partnership where you, again, maybe it's like that, like sexual compatibility comes in and you worry about that, but maybe it is just your blueprints are almost like not aligning. Like if it is more of like the yearning versus the sexual until you just have different ideas of sex, how do you provide the the right context and the right types of sexuality for both of you to feel fulfilled together, if that makes sense, if your blueprints do feel so different? Expanding your blueprint essentially means that, okay, I'm going to take my partner's blueprint. And now I'm going to go and dive in. And it really is about this willingness. Am I willing to now take the time and the energy and the effort? It doesn't have to be like effortful. It can be pleasurable to learn your partner's blueprint. But okay, I'm not going to go learn to speak French now. I'm going to spend a half an hour a day and I'm going to learn to speak French. I'm going to find an app and I'm going to get on there. And I'm going to have fun. We can do the same thing with sexuality. We just don't think about it's available, but it is. There's all kinds of apps. There's courses. There's books. There's so many different things that you can do to learn your partner's blueprint. There's coaches in sexuality who can give you like the guidelines right there, hands-on to learn the skills. Part of it is let's learn together. Let me take your blueprint now and expand into your blueprint. And what it means to fully expand is that not only did I learn the skills and I've got it intellectually and I can please you in bed, but now I'm actually integrated in your blueprint and now it's a turn on for me. I'll give you an example of this. So my partner and I, we went through a really rough patch. We were not having sex. And as a sexologist and someone who does this for a living, that was a really rough time for me. So I out of control. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I found out that he was kinky. And on our erotic blueprint quiz, I was 0% kinky. I'm primarily sexual blueprint and he's 0% sexual. His secondary blueprint was sensual and I was 5% sensual. And my secondary is energetic and he's 5% energetic. So we're completely flipped in our map, in our blueprint. And so instead of going, oh my God, we're doomed, we're not compatible, I knew enough at least to go, wait a minute, all we have to do is learn. So I went and took kink classes and we did an experiment of 40 days of kink where 40 days I was dominant with him and 40 days I was submissive to him. I even wrote a book on it. like. We, we learned everything that we could about this topic so that I could feed him in his blueprint. And then he went, okay, Jaya is primarily sexual. What do I need to do in myself to heal? Because he had a lot of sexual inhibition and also mythologies about women. Like, oh, women don't want to be opposed upon sexually by men. 
and women don't want this and they don't want that. He's like being the nice guy and he's a beautiful man, but like, I want sex. <laughs> and so <laughs> you know, I would do things that would totally turn him off. I'd be like, chop, chop, come on, like, let's have sex. <laughs> and he's like, this is my fair. It's like, wait a minute. I need to warm up into it. I'm stressed. I've had a hard day. And I just, I couldn't understand. Aren't men supposed to be wanting to have sex all the time? The mythologies that we had to unravel. And then we had to find our way into how does my energetic cross with his kinky? How does his sensual play with my sexual? To where we could find like a Venn diagram, that place in the middle where I could find turn-ons in the kinky and he could find turn-ons in the sexual and in the energetic. And we could find those roads in and those bridges to help us really come into a really hot, really full sex, sex life. And then eventually become shapeshifters. Because like I said, I think it's truly who we all are. It's just that we've created all this other stuff that limits us. And so now we have lots of variety because we became shapeshifters eventually from expanding continually. And so we can speak all the languages now. Wow, that is a really fascinating example. Something that you said is where can I find the turn on in that myself? And that's probably my next question for you. And I am guessing this is your answer. You can tell me if I'm on or off, but I would think that it's like what differentiates the performative from you genuinely being able to enjoy it is that you are taking the context of what, you know, your partner gets turned on by, but finding what turns you on within that context. Is that right? Versus like, I'm just going to fake it. Then yep. that's obviously performative and you want to avoid that. Right. Sometimes at the beginning, it might feel a little performative because it mm. isn't turn on and that's okay. You just don't want to get stuck there in it always being performative. You really want to find like your own juiciness in whatever that is. It's just like learning to play an instrument or a sport. You know, at first you feel a little clunky when you're <laughs> yeah. learning. A little awkward, like, yeah. It's like until you become more competent and then you don't even have to think about it anymore. Then it starts to flourish into your own turn on. You find aspects of it that are your own, or you're just turned on because your partner's turned on. Like, even though I don't really get this energetic thing where I'm not touching you, but you're riding around in pleasure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know in this example, your partner was just as willing to educate work a lot of effort to get to where you feel sexually satisfied so it probably goes without saying but I feel like this is probably an important message for people to hear on this is that it requires two people to be equally interested in turning the other on I guess and like fulfilling the other person because if you have one who's like okay I want to fix this so I'm going to go do the education the kink class whatever but then the other partner is like I'm waiting for you to meet me at my level rather than trying to shift to meet at your level as well. It probably doesn't work, I'm guessing. That's really interesting. Um, I did an experiment with Ian. I always kind of had one foot out the door because of this sexual piece. I felt like my needs weren't being met. It felt like he wasn't into me because he wasn't meeting my sexual blueprint. And so I made this decision. It was in January. So it was like one of those New Year's resolution things of like, I'm going to be 100% all in. And I'm going to do whatever it takes this year to turn this around. And I'm not going to tell him because I'm going to see if it only takes one to shift a relationship. So I just decided I made a mental shift and an energetic shift that I'm 100% all in in this relationship. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to see what turns him on and what seduces him and try all kinds of experiments 
So by the time October hit, we had a radically different relationship. And he actually said to me, oh my God, like our relationship is so amazing. Like just going on. And I was like, did you feel a shift this year? And he was like, yeah, like you've just totally shifted and that shifted me. It made me so much more open and so much more willing. And I said, you will, I'll tell you a secret. I didn't make it the whole year. I told him in October. So I said, I decided in January that I was going to be 100% all in and I was going to do what it took to be here with you and to make the shift in myself instead of always having one foot out the door. And he was like, yeah, I really felt it. And then it made me want to be all in with you. Sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I'm like, maybe it only takes one. Not always. I don't think that's always going to be successful. But sometimes it's your own inner shift, shifts your reality outside of yourself. That's a great example. I think it's easy in a long-term relationship to get into that place where you're like, I'm asking for you to change, then I'm getting resentful because you're not. Rather than when you're shifting within yourself, it's almost like the energetic shift then changes how the other partners are interacting with you. And that's probably a more effective way and also a powerful way to get to the relationship you want. Yeah, I always say if you're pointing one finger, there's 10 fingers pointing back. Yeah. Instead of blame. The fastest way to change a relationship is to stop focusing on what they're not doing and start focusing on what you can bring to the relationship. I I pulled this quote from your website because I love it so much. It says, a great sex life inspires radiant aliveness. Sex is more than intercourse. Sex is healing. So I wanted to ask you, how and why is sex healing? So many ways. Thanks for pulling that. That's such a juicy quote. (laughs) I love it. I love that quote so much. There's so many ways. If we look at each layer again, just on the physical layer, we've got a biochemistry. Every time we're having sex, it's telling our body to produce sex hormones that are our youth hormones. So it's bringing this radiant aliveness to ourselves by bathing ourselves in pleasurable sex hormones. If you're in pleasure, you glow. You're radiant. You know, your body's producing biochemistry that says, oh, aliveness, stay alive, stay youthful. You're procreating just that level of healing and health. And then there's the emotional level. 25 years of neuroscience says we need each other. We need secure attachment. We need to have other people in our lives. And that's healthy for us. It's healthy to have touch. It's healthy to have cuddles. Uh, and, and again, I'm thinking of sex more than just intercourse. I'm thinking of sex in terms of this broader spectrum of it. And then there's the spiritual aspects of sexuality, which I think a lot of people don't touch on. But when used consciously and in, in right relationship, there is a spiritual awakening that can happen through sex. I and mean, it's why we say, oh, God, at the moment of orgasm, it's because we have a remembrance of who and what we truly are. And we go beyond the blueprints. And when people have these mystical or spiritual experiences, something in them heals. That's so beautiful. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. And how can we get more radiant aliveness through our sex lives? Breath during sex. So many people hold their breath. I am guilty of being a tension orgasmer. Nothing wrong with that. You can use holding your breath to have orgasm if you have difficulty. But a lot of people hold their breath. The more you breathe, the more you feel, the more aliveness can come in. So as arousal gets higher, we need more oxygen. So breathing, nice, big, deep breaths, slow, even trance-like breathing, where you're breathing together with a partner can be very, or self-pleasure, and that can be very beneficial. 
and bringing more radiance in. Getting fed in your blueprint, being able to communicate your needs brings more radiance in. More pleasure. How are you putting pleasure first in your life? We have a core brand value called Pleasure First. What are you doing that's pleasurable? Before you do anything else in your day, are you shampooing your hair in a certain way or singing a song or self-pleasuring, having an orgasm? I used to have my O vitamin every day. It was in my schedule before I started my day. Make sure I have my O vitamin. I mean, that probably does way more for you than like a multivitamin. <laughs> right? It gets my endogenous neurochemicals going so that I feel good. Thinking about pleasure in our daily lives, like thinking how you're shampooing your hair, what you're doing in the morning, probably most of us would look at our lives and be like, I'm literally not experiencing pleasure at any point. I'm a wellness editor, so I talk about this all the time with food, where so many people are like, the right way to be healthy is to restrict and to eat less. But it's like, no, pleasure is wellness. So food should be this abundant, beautiful, wonderful, enjoyable thing. You should receive pleasure from food. I think our culture is just very much like, Pleasure is bad. We need to limit. We need to be disciplined and strict and do workouts that are really hard instead of that feel good. So I think most people might look at their lives and be like, wow, I, I really don't have a lot of pleasure. Yep. 100%. Pleasure is so taboo just to get my message out. The word pleasure, we get in trouble for it. We almost didn't title the book with the word pleasure because we were getting censored. Our business has been shut down for using the word pleasure and we can't even do business because, oops, I use the word pleasure in an email. It's just fascinating to me that we can't even say the word without being shut down or censored. No wonder everyone has shame about sex that they have to work through because we live in a culture where talking about something that is literally as biological as necessary as food and water and breath, it is so shut down. And we're all so a product of sex. Humanity wouldn't exist without it. That's why when people say pleasure is just this like want or not good. And I'm like, yeah, but none of us would be here if we didn't have it. If we didn't eat, we wouldn't survive. If we didn't have sex, we wouldn't survive as a species. We'd be gone. Okay, Jai, I could keep talking to you for hours, but <laughs> I'm going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. A favorite sex toy or position? My favorite sex toy is the massage table. <laughs> oh, listen, that's like two birds of one stone, get some knots out of your back. Uh -huh. I love it. You tie things to it, massage people. It's great. A song that makes you feel empowered or sexy. Right now, I am really loving Makeba is the name of the song. It's really just, I don't know, it's juicy. It's making me feel mm. juicy right now. I love that when you just have to think about a song and you feel juicy. <laughs> Best advice you've ever received. Unconditional love for you from you and then everybody gets it. A book that changed your life. Oh my gosh. So many. That's such a hard one. <laughs> I know. This is the evil um, question because everyone always wants to give a list. <laughs> evil question because I read five <laughs> books a week. Right now, the one that just popped in my head was Deepest Acceptance by Jeff Foster. I was going through a really rough time and I came across that book and it radically changed my life because it helps me accept everything that arises, no matter what it is. I need that one. That sounds great. <laughs> Where can everybody find you and get your books and all the things you have going on? So the book will be out. It'll be in bookstores um, everywhere. So you can find that pretty easily. So it's your blueprint for pleasure. 
And then the website to take the quiz is blueprintbreakthrough.com. And then you can also find me. I'm on social, but also jaya.love, L-O-V-E, jaya.love. I recommend everyone go take the quiz, especially if you're still after listening to this conversation unsure about which blueprint you are, that's where you find the clarity is in the quiz online. So everyone go take that. If you have a partner, make your partner go take it. I feel like everyone's going to have a lot of fun tonight after this conversation, after listening <laughs> I to this. Know. I know you guys listening will have some fun. Jai, thank you so much. This was oh, so you. empowering. So awesome. Thank you so much for having the conversation. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I sure did. If this episode gave you any value or you're liking the show in general, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference for our show so we can keep growing and bringing the content that you love. If you want more info, you can find us at The Every Girl Podcast on Instagram or theeverygirlpodcast.com. Talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.